Well, there was a, P, a research paper from 2017 that showed those women had these elevated levels of senescent cells in their thigh musculature. And after they'd been on a resistance training program, that the levels of cellular senescence had, had dipped, had dropped within that thigh musculature. So you see very practical, real world changes. And I think the exciting thing about resistance training or high intensity interval training is what it does to the muscles and how much of an impact it has on the entire physiology. Hello, hello. Welcome back, Neurohacker community, to episode number 72 of our podcast. Dr. Heather Sanderson is joined by YouTube star and business coach Thomas DeLauer and the founder and director of Hit Uni, Simon Shawcross, to talk about training your body for optimal health and longevity. We dive deep into the science behind resistance training and explain the protocols that are safest and the most effective to support well-being and healthy aging. For details on this episode, go to neurohacker.com slash podcast. You'll get a summary of our show, the full transcript, and can join in the conversation in the comments. Without further ado, let's jump into the show. Here's Heather, Thomas, and Simon. Welcome to Collective Insights. I'm your host today, Dr. Heather Sanderson, and I am joined by Simon and Thomas today. They are both experts in their fields of high-intensity training, and so we're going to dig into the details today of what the differences in their, their approaches are and what kind of exercise might be best for you. So welcome, Thomas. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and Simon, thanks for joining us. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. So I started the conversation with you guys going, there's two things going on here, HIT, HIT training, and HIIT, also HIT training. So Simon, what's the difference? So you have high intensity interval training and high intensity resistance training. So with the interval training, more often than not, it will be done on a piece of cardio equipment or maybe even running outdoors on a track. Whereas with uh, high intensity resistance training, you're working very hard against usually an external load. So it'd be typically thought of as resistance training with weights. Now, some of the uh, physical outcomes are very, very similar, if not the same between the two approaches. So Thomas, what have you used in your practice with, you work a lot with executives and, and you do a lot of coaching around this. What is, what's your favorite modality here? Yeah, I mean, I'm really a fan of, it, it depends if they're someone that's really trying to eliminate a lot of concussion and they're not trying to, you know, blast their joints a whole lot, then it's a whole different ballgame. But if it's someone who's a completely healthy individual with healthy joints, you know, I'm a fan of a mix of the two because I think they have their practical application. Um, when you start mixing them together in a given workout, I feel you have you run into some issues. But when you mix them separately, where some days you're doing more of a high intensity resistance type workout versus a high intensity interval training another day, it allows you to really get that optimum result from each given category. And I think Simon will probably continue to explain that you are kind of getting the same end result in a lot of ways, but you're coming down, coming to it from two different avenues. Um, you know, a resistance training anaerobic world, which is probably going to have a larger metabolic effect versus a high intensity interval training cardio effect, which might be a little bit more short term, but be more, um, you know, oxygen related, be more aerobic related. So we'll kind of, uh, We'll dive into that a little bit more, but I like to do a little bit of both, to be completely honest. Yeah, is it the same for you, Simon? Primarily, I do the resistance training, um, and I dabble, I dip in and out of integrating 
some high intensity interval training with that as well. So um, I enjoy occasionally uh, going through periods when I might prep for a, a sort of like a 5k run. And then I'll definitely be using intervals in preparation to do that. Um, also mountain bike as well. So I'll use some interval type stuff for mountain biking too. So it depends if my goal is currently just um, on health, it'll be resistance training. If I'm looking to achieve a specific goal or, or improve at something specifically, uh, usually that'll be a run or a bike uh, type of a bike type ride, then I will bring in the interval training as well. So I'd like to go into this because in my mind as a clinician, I think cardio is so important for long-term health. But what you said was if you're doing it just for health, you're going to do more of the resistance training. So can you help me square that circle? So it really depends with the resistance training on how you're applying it. So to get the maximum benefit from a health perspective, if out of resistance training, you need to be going to a point or very close to a point that's described in the literature as muscle failure or muscular failure, which simply means that if you imagine you're holding some weights in your hands and you're lifting them up and down, you get to a point where during that upward movement, uh, as you're lifting those dumbbells, you cannot continue to move the weight. It, it just can't, despite your focus, your will, your desire to keep it moving up, it won't go up anymore. And um, that seems to be a huge trigger for the physiology as a whole. And I like to think of the muscles as a window to your entire physiology. And if you can trip that switch, a whole cascade of positive hormonal um, effect is going to take place, including enhancing the cardiovascular system, releasing things such as myokines, which have a huge impact. So we now know that muscle is a secretory organ. It's not just a dumb collection of muscle tissue that can, you know, contract and, and relax. It's something that is a secretory organ that has an impact on other organs in the body as well. So resistance training, if you're, if you're working to that point of muscle failure or very close. It might be one rep shy of muscle failure. The research isn't really clear on that. It might even be two reps shy. But for safety's sake, if you want to know you've done everything you can do, it's about going to that point of muscle failure. Now, the challenge in doing that, especially if you sort of see the way some people lift weights, is that they can mistake sort of an intrinsic fatiguing of the target muscle with an external focus of just lifting a load, hoiking a load as hard and as fast as they can. Well, if you want to get the health benefits out of resistance training over the long term chronically, you need to do it safely. So that means reducing speed, eliminating momentum, and focusing on the quality of the contractions rather than I'm lifting 100 kilograms or 200 pounds uh, or, or having these external goals, which are fine if you're in a sport which requires that, such as Olympic lifting or powerlifting. But from a health perspective, it's about fatiguing that target muscular safely through biomechanically correct exercises. Yeah. And then if I can add, can I add something in there too on the health side? It's uh, This is just some stuff that I read recently, which is just intriguing. So it's it, the longer that a muscle is under load, we're starting to see that there is more activation of more protein density in what's called a GLUT4 transporter. So when you look at it from a, an overall health perspective, someone that's uh, getting older, someone that might be suffering from uh, some kind of metabolic condition or, or metabolic disorder, 
if you can increase GLUT4 transporter, what that ultimately means is, is at least is demonstrated that carbohydrates, sugar, glucose, that's floating through the bloodstream can get into the cell more effectively. A more dense GLUT4 transporter is going to bring in more glucose into the cell, meaning it's not floating around in the bloodstream. It's not causing these other issues. Um, that's a huge, huge piece. So now we're starting to see the evidence that, well, resistance training in general, but then taking it one step further and seeing that, you know, when a muscle is under load, you increase the density of that GLUT4 transporter. So that is huge when it comes down to just overall health, health and longevity. In terms of reducing the risk of diabetes or, or high blood sugar, and, and even if it's not diabetes, all of the cascade of events in the cells and biochemically that are damaging to, to cellular health, even yeah, if it's not diagnosed diabetes. Definitely. I think, yeah, and I'm very careful not to talk about any kind of diag- you know, disease state, but I think we can just generally round it to glucose intolerance as a whole is a problem. You know, if you're glucose intolerant, whether you're insulin resistant or not, you can run into a world of hurt. And uh, I think we're seeing that time and time again, whether it's related to, uh, you know, hypertension, whether it's related to diabetes, you know, you could go on and on. Yeah, right. And then can you speak to testosterone? So muscle building. So if we're talking about muscle fatiguing and and certainly building muscle, having more muscle in the system, um, what happens to testosterone? Simon, I'll let you, I'll let you lead on this because you probably know more on the exercise-related piece directly, and I can speak to uh, kind of what happens post-exercise in terms of nutrition. If- sure. So when you perform a, a high-intensity resistance training workout, uh, during the workout and for a few hours afterwards, you will elevate your levels of testosterone. And that goes back towards baseline fairly quickly after that there might be some sort of chronic elevation over a period of time but when you're talking about increasing testosterone through exercise and you compare it to somebody who's taking uh, testosterone uh, you know via the needle it's it's much much lower effect so you, you're not putting huge amounts of testosterone into the system just by exercise and you'll get a three-hour period of elevation, and then it'll move toward baseline again after that. Yeah, and that's exactly, you know, along the lines of what I would say, too. And Simon, I'm curious to hear kind of your insight on this, too. But um, I am slowly, I shouldn't say slowly, quickly becoming a believer that it's less about the testosterone and more about that switch over into the, you know, proper M4 activation, P70S6K, kind of the downstream pathways uh, of protein synthesis. And because it's so interesting when you look at some of these studies, you see even women that have low levels of testosterone can arguably have higher degrees of muscle protein synthesis occurring after a workout. How do you explain that, right? It's like, okay, there's very little testosterone. They still have, by and large, about the same increase in testosterone uh, per capita, if you want to call it that, than as men do. But they end up having sometimes more muscle protein synthesis. How do you explain that? Well, obviously that can go down a different rabbit hole of different epigenetic things, but I don't believe that testosterone is the end all be all. But then again, you look at the other piece of the equation is the more muscle mass that somebody has, the more androgen receptors they have. So then potentially more uh, testosterone that's actually able to bind and actually androgens that are actually able to bind and do their job. Uh, But it's like sort of that that switch that gets flipped, and again, uh, kind of comes back to that hormetic response, like doing hard things, lifting weights that are difficult to lift and putting your muscle under load, triggering sort of this very black and white switch. It's either on or it's off. And it, testosterone is just kind of uh, 
almost a satellite response of that, if that makes sense. I think also it's, you know, that I think you touched on it earlier, Thomas, is, you know, the increase in glycogen storage um, in turning on the glycogen receptors on the muscle in the muscle tissue is super important. That release of the myokines is super important. It has, you know, so many beneficial effects on metabolic processes, hypertrophy, fighting off sarcopenia. Um, and then you go on to things as people age, like senescence, um, where you have these cells that can cause damage to the other cells around them. Well, there's a, a research paper from 2017 that showed those these women had these elevated levels of senescent cells in their thigh musculature. And after they'd been on a resistance training program, that the levels of cellular senescence had, had dipped had dropped within that thigh musculature. So you see very practical, real-world changes. And I think the exciting thing about resistance training or high-intensity interval training is what it does to the muscles and how much of an impact it has on the entire physiology. It's just this huge cascading effect. It's sort of it's waking up the system, as it were. And many of us, unfortunately, uh, in the Western world today, live in a place where we are not tapping into that, not turning that on, and, and without using it, you know, it goes, it slowly goes. And, and we actually have tools that can bring it back for people and, and can effectively reverse mitochondrial aging to a degree as well. That's amazing. I always tell patients, exercise is the best deal in medicine. There's really nothing else that you can do where you're going to get the return that you will with exercise. So it sounds like not just in my mind, I'm always thinking, okay, if you exercise more, you're going to get more testosterone production. And that's going to help a lot of people feel healthier, more stable mood wise, have more energy, a little more like get up and go in the mornings. But you're saying it's not that simple. It's not just testosterone. It's not just insulin and sh blood sugar. There's all kinds of biochemical cascades that are turned on when you get to this certain degree of exercise. So the next place I want to go, because I'm sold, right? Like, all right, we want in. So how do we do it safely? Is it necessary if we're going to take on one of these routines, like one of you guys might, might author or suggest for a, a client, is that easy to do without a coach or do we definitely need a coach? How risky is it in terms of getting hurt? Thomas, do you want to go first? You know, sure. My, my experience is there's always going to be a learning curve depending on you know where you are, who you are. No matter what you're trying to take on as something new, there's always going to be a learning curve. I think we're seeing you know now during these times when a lot of us are in isolation that there are ways to learn without, say, hands-on coaching as much. I think you know, you're seeing a lot of things happen via Zoom, and everything. I think we're going to evolve and we're going to adapt. Uh, you know, that being said, when you're looking at a special patient population or anything like that, of course, it's better to be hands-on. But I think it's a matter of uh, you know, what is someone after? Are they looking to uh, going back to what Simon had said? Are you training for something specifically? If you're training for something specifically, by all means, I think. If you don't have a coach, you're leaving a lot on the table. I mean, even Simon probably has coaches. I have coaches. It, it's just the way of the world. Uh, if you're just trying to get in the door and get started with this kind of thing, I still think having a coach, having someone that can help you out is a huge, huge advantage. Uh, that being said, I don't think it literally needs to be someone that is there with you holding your hand all the time unless you're trying to achieve something that might be, might be dangerous or might be new or might put you at risk. 
my answer would totally back that up and I'd say yes and no is the short answer to what you're saying. um, Ideally, yes, you have somebody to show you the ropes. It's always better to have that hands-on, one-to-one tuition from somebody who could do it. But if that, for whatever reason, is not possible for you right now, for goodness sake, don't let that get in the way of good information, solid information helping you to start that process because you're better off starting it um, than, than not. Um, there are things that, I mean, it's, it's super interesting talking about the Zoom thing. It's like I've seen it and I know it for myself. You can be in a room training by yourself and you can have one person come into that room, not say anything, and that adds motivation to people to work well and work right and demonstrate how hard they're training and how safely and effectively they're training. And that's without saying a word. And so even just from that psychological perspective, it makes a difference. But then having somebody who knows joint angles, potential range of movements, what to do if uh, you've got an issue with your rotator cuff in your left shoulder, what to do if, 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 um, then there's, you know, a multitude of reasons why it's very beneficial to have a trainer or a coach. Yeah. So... The next thing that keeps people from engaging in exercise is always the excuse, I'll call it, of time. I don't have enough time. If I if I do that, well, then I'm going to have to take a shower after that. I'm going to have to bring clothes with me. Or I'm going to have to, you know, there's all these, it feels like a burden almost to, to get this into your routine. Do you have any tips for people to make it more seamless, more effortless, more frictionless when you're trying to adopt a routine like what you guys would put together? Ahead, first Tom. and foremost, uh, first and foremost, it doesn't need to be long. <laughs> I think Simon will, will definitely echo this, knowing what I uh, you know of him. It doesn't need to be a long workout. It, it doesn't. It's about a stimulus. It's about it, it, if you back up and you think it's not about trauma anymore. It's not about how can you just obliterate your body and obliterate muscles. You know, I, I used to read muscle building magazines where it was ultimately telling me to go into a gym and just destroy my biceps until I couldn't lift my arms anymore. That that would take hours. That would take time. And you don't need to be doing that. It's more about the frequency. It's more about the consistency and keeping that constant load on the muscle. And by constant load, I don't just mean during the workout. I mean constant in terms of the grand scheme of things and your big scale too. If you back up and you look at your life with a, you know, a, a zoom lens and you back it out and you look okay over the course of a month how many times have i touched this muscle in terms of putting it under load that's what's ultimately going to matter so you might have a day where you are in the gym for 15 or 20 minutes literally and you might have another day where you can spend a little bit more time you work within the confines of what you've got there are many many times many times i've lost count how many times i've gone to the gym and i've just done you know a 15 minute power pump i mean i go in there and i just tax my full body put it under load and it's done. And, you know, and guess what? I mean, I didn't waste away. I didn't lose my gains. I didn't lose progress. I didn't lose health. So it's more about just getting in there, keeping it consistent and keeping that muscle under load. So you can, again, flip that very black and white switch, whether it's 10 minutes under load or an hour under load, you're still flipping that switch. You can't flip it harder. You can't, you know, it's like you flip a light switch. You can't lift the light switch up to the point more to make the lights brighter and brighter. It's just, it's going to reach its limit at some point. Okay. Yeah, and I, I'd add to that and say, um, make it as convenient as yourself for possible as possible. So, if you have a facility close by, a good facility close by, use that. Find ways to just make it easy for yourself. Do it at home. 
um, mm. if that's the only option. Have a have a trainer who's going to work with you over Zoom. If, if that's going to work best for you or while you're in the office behind your desk, if that's going to work best for you, integrate that. And, and then you can build other ways of doing it in over time. And I'd say from a high-intensity resistance training perspective, you only need to train for 15 to 20 minutes once, twice, or three times a week. And I just expand on that. Twice a week is probably optimal for the vast majority of people doing this if you're doing a full body workout. You're probably going to get 80 to 90% of the benefits by doing once a week. So it's not an exponential doubling of the benefit if you go to twice a week. And some people with certain DNA, certain way their physiologies may get more again from doing three times a week, but they would be at one end of the spectrum. So it's not a whole lot of time that you need to invest into this type of exercise in the first place. It can fit busy professional family person's life conveniently. And I think that's a really key thing, because if we talk about athletes and we look at athletes, they have all the time in the world to train. They have loads of time to recover, so long as it's not peak end of the season. They have loads of recovery strategies uh, and tools and, and nutritionists and people helping them, tools that not everybody has. So I don't think it's useful for the majority of people to look to emulate a professional athlete in their training. And, and to, to attempt to do so when you've got three kids running around, you've got a high stress job, you've got relationships you need to maintain, you've got sleep patterns you need to, to look after and everything else going on, I think it's better to focus on doing what is possible to do and is shown in the research is going to have the maximum amount of benefit or the optimal amount of benefit for the least amount of time you can put in and make that at least your starting point. So you just kind of blew my mind. Are you saying that in... 20 minutes, maybe twice a week, you can still get beneficial return? That's absolutely. That's what the research very clearly shows. If you build a routine on multi-joint or compound exercises, which would be like a squat, a chest press or a push-up, uh, a chin-up or a pull-down, big exercises that target a lot of the musculature in one go, and you work those to muscular failure, um, you're using a correct range of motion through those exercises. Um, you're using a sensible uh, tempo or velocity of movement, so you're not moving too fast, and you're, and you're keeping that tension, as Thomas mentioned earlier, on the muscle tissue all the way through the set until that point of fatigue or very close to fatigue. And a set only needs, one individual set only needs to last between 60 and 90 seconds. And then you flip that switch. And if you do that for a minimum of four exercises to cover the whole body, and I'd say uh, up to about 10 exercises, that's going to be done in 15, 20, if you're hanging around a bit between exercises, 25 minutes tops. That's amazing. And that works for the majority of people. I mean, who doesn't have 20 minutes twice a week? Yeah, absolutely. Right. It can fit your life. And the, the, the sheer number of people, I've been a personal trainer, for 20 years and the sheer number of people who are unable to stick to a fitness lifestyle routine program previously and discovered this kind of exercise were just like wow well, this, this works this this can fit and what you start to notice after a while they come for six months and they start to go i want to do more now because you've woken up with the physiology and, and and it's like now there's more spare looking for more space in their life to, to bring more in 
And, and at that point, I tend to encourage people, well, you don't really need to lift more than that. Maybe you're one of those, those people who can get more out of three times a week full body. But maybe go and find yourself, you know, another physical activity to enjoy. Yeah. Do you want to ride a bike? Do you want to play tennis? Do you, you know, bring something else into the picture? Do you want to run a 5K? Do you want to, you know, find something else to, to put that? Now use it. You've built the motor car up. You've now, you're, you're now on your way to creating a Ferrari. Now you want to burn it around the block a few times as well. Yeah, without a doubt. And what's like, I think a big thing that needs to be looked at is, most people, when they are going to the gym six, seven days per week and they're grinding it, they're looking at it from trying to outwork their diet. You know, and that's the thing that we have to remember here is that you know, everything Simon is saying is entirely 100% true. The literature shows that one to three times per week and you're there and you're there. And does that mean that you can't do more? No, you can do more as long as your recovery is in line and you know, go down that, that rabbit hole too. But most people are looking at their workouts through a different lens. They're looking at it through uh, combating the extra calories they're taking in. And which, again, that again, it goes down so many different directions we could go, just kind of the, the big overall perspective that people tend to have in terms of calories in versus calories out being the only way. And, and so if you look at, okay, well, I consumed too much yesterday, that means I need to go and I need to work out and I need to punish myself and I need to, well, you could in a lot of senses be messing yourself up, setting yourself back. And the reality is, yes, you have to have a two-part equation. If you're willing to, uh, work out one to two times per week for 20 minutes also understand that that's going to be having that metabolic effect that's going to allow you to build muscle allow your overall metabolism to increase but you're not moving as much so make sure that your calories are still in line make sure that your food is still in line because it's not going to necessarily be um about the calories i will tell you from my own experience and from lots of different clients when you do a workout you don't actually burn all that many calories. You really don't. Uh, and Simon, I'm sure you know this. I mean, with resistance training, we like to believe that we that our Apple iWatch is correct. Um, but it's generally, if we're going into a resistance training setup and we're going to do uh, squats, we're going to do maybe some uh, other compounders and pull-ups and deadlifts, whatever we want to do. It's actually not that many calories you're burning. You're not really doing yourself that much service in terms of combating the calories. What you're doing is you're changing your physiology and changing your metabolism that later on down the line will allow you to accommodate those calories. So it's just important that that's, that's really clear so that you don't say, okay, I'm going to work out two times per week. This is great. Or I'm going to cut my workouts back, but I'm going to uh, eat more. It's not quite the same. You'll get there, but it's not that way in the beginning. So I do want to go down that rabbit hole of how do we get the most out of our exercise program by optimizing diet? So keto diets, um, you know, vegan diets, there's so many different diets out there. From your perspective, what makes the most sense with a HIT training program? That's a very good question. And it's definitely has multiple answers because first of all, different physiology for different people and this can get very very technical very quickly if you wanted to but different physiology some people um, more type 1 muscle fibers they are going to respond better to beta oxidation they're going to respond better to uh, a higher fat lower carbohydrate diet then you have people that are largely type 2 muscle fibers people that are very 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 anaerobic they still respond well to low carbohydrate uh, low carbohydrate high fat diets but they might notice a little bit more 
tweaking that they have to do to get themselves there. But I think at the end of the day, the big piece that we want to focus on is mitochondrial health, mitochondrial density, mitochondrial health. Um, when you look at the disease states that the world is in, like all kinds of different disease states, it almost invariably circles back to mitochondrial dysfunction. Poor aging, poor health, everything circles back to mitochondrial dysfunction. It purely does. And we have to remember that the mitochondria is the energy powerhouse of the cell, yes, but it's also doing a lot more. Our mitochondria, just to, to give just a basic backstory on it, that is where we create adenosine triphosphate. That's where we create energy, the energy currency within our cells. Now, our mitochondria is so unique that it has its own DNA its own DNA inside our bodies, which have our own set of DNA. So our mitochondria, these little factories inside of our cells, they have quite literally a mind and a body of their own. That's how important they are. So when you have a dysfunctional mitochondria because your body is going through metabolic distress or metabolic disorder, you have this cascade of just different metabolic issues that come to mind or come to be. So exercising in itself is going to improve mitochondrial health and i think i look at it it's the cool thing about exercise in general and physiology and nutrition is you've got so many awesome experts that have different ways that they look at this and you know my role is to look at it from sort of a biochemical nutrition perspective to support what happens on the exercise side so the exercise by itself is improving mitochondrial density which means it improves the amount of oxygen that can get through the mitochondria it improves the amount of free fatty acids that can get into the mitochondria and get broken down into acetyl coenzyme a get utilized for energy so then how do you support that well the nice thing with a higher fat lower carbohydrate ketogenic diet is it improves just by its very natural that mitochondrial density so it allows fats essentially to get into that mitochondria faster and combine with oxygen to create fuel this is great for not only your exercise performance but think about it in general just regular life walking around if you have an energy factory in your body that is more efficient and is producing creating more output with less overall employees if you want to call it that less overall load overhead I mean, that makes the most sense. It's just less demand on the body. And the ketogenic diet via two avenues does that, right? It's, it's, it's changing the macronutrients that are coming in. So yes, that plays a role. But also, just like uh, Simon was talking about how we're finding out that the musculoskeletal system, that our muscle is actually an organ, we're actually seeing that ketones, which are created when you eat a higher fat, lower carbohydrate diet, act as a signaling device and trigger the body to change. They trigger the mitochondria to change. My point in saying all of this is not to force or encourage people to do a ketogenic diet, but just to understand that it's all about a certain level of taxation and a certain level of stress on the body. Okay, everything Simon's talked about is about putting the muscle under load. Well, we can also put the metabolism under appropriate load by stressing it, by depriving it of carbohydrates for just a little bit of time to the point where the body becomes very efficient at utilizing other fuel sources. This makes you a very efficient human being that can survive whether you have carbohydrates or whether you don't. 
And that's what we're after. And we're not trying to be dogmatic and saying carbs are bad. We're trying to make sure that people can be metabolically efficient. Um, and for before and then I'll shut up. Everything that also applies with the ketogenic diet still applies with intermittent fasting if people don't necessarily want to go that route. And I think for longevity's sake, um, that's a much easier pill for people to swallow because it's easier to, say, skip breakfast and go a period of time without eating than it is to uh, get someone that is unfamiliar with the ketogenic diet to start eating eggs or start eating higher fat foods that have been, quite honestly, demonized for so long. It, it's, yeah. So question there, and Simon, jump in here, but my understanding is that if you're going to do intermittent fasting, it's really best to combine that with a ketogenic diet. And if you're still in using sugar for fuel, that skipping a meal maybe is not as beneficial um, just because you get on that swing of high sugar and then low sugar and then your liver kicks in and creates more sugar and now you're back in a high sugar state. Um, so maybe you guys can clarify that. Is it is it kind of all or nothing that you're in ketosis and doing intermittent fasting or in glycolysis and eating small frequent meals? Or is there some beneficial diet that sort of combines facets of both of that those things? Thomas, do you want to just carry on with that one first? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, the short, again, it's kind of a yes and no answer. Um, yes, combining the ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting makes it infinitely easier, infinitely more effective. Uh, it really does. What I try to do is explain it in a way where I, I understand just being kind of on the front lines with everything keto related is that it's, it's very difficult at first for someone to, to, to accept that it's okay to eat these higher fat foods in the absence of carbohydrates. So uh, it's a lot easier to get someone on board with the benefits with intermittent fasting. And the reason that that is the case is because the ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting affect the body in extremely, extremely similar ways. With ketosis, for all intents and purposes, all that you're doing is mimicking fasting to the body. You're, you're telling the body, because you're deprived of glucose, carbohydrates, that it's in a quote-unquote starvation mode. However, I don't even like using that term because it's really just has a terrible connotation. You're not starving. But the body goes through the same metabolic reaction and horm hormonal and overall just response with ketosis as it does with intermittent fasting. In fact, when you are intermittent fasting, you are generally create, creating ketones because you have been, just by essence of not eating food, you've been deprived of carbohydrates. Um, when you do combine them, keto and intermittent fasting, yes, you avoid the blood sugar swings, so it makes your fasting easier and makes you capable of doing longer-term fasts, and it allows you to get the benefits faster. Um, there are certain situations for you know maybe maximal uh, muscle hypertrophy if you're really trying to build muscle and things like that. Yeah, you could you know add some carbs into the mix at strategic times, um, but that again that gets down a little bit more of a complicated rabbit hole. The short answer is if you want the best result from both a cellular standpoint and a body you know a cosmetic standpoint, combining intermittent fasting and keto is definitely going to be a stronger stronger route. And Simon, what do you tell your clients about diet? So I think the perspective I come from at the very outset is make sure you're eating whole food, stuff that you cook yourself or somebody else has cooked from scratch for you if you, if you have to buy meals out. So it's really simple stuff. I put an emphasis on things like protein um, first and foremost, making sure you're getting an adequate amount of protein. Um, 
not really worrying about fat at all. Um, you know, when you're eating eggs and, and you're, um, you know, making sure you're getting the omegas as well at an appropriate level. And then in terms of carbohydrate, I, I think from my perspective, that comes down to the sensitivity of the individual to carbohydrates and maybe how metabolically deranged they are in, in the first place. So, uh, and, and as Thomas touched on, um, their, their training as well. So if you're prepping for a 25K run, then you might want to strategically use carbohydrates at certain times, especially pre-race, to optimize the body's ability to perform under those constraints. And if you're looking to glycogen supercompensate for the, uh, for the reason of stepping on a bodybuilding straight stage and looking at, at your absolute peak musculature as best you can, then doing these glycogen depleting workouts back to back and then taking in uh, carbohydrate to swell the muscles with the water that's coming along with that glycogen um, is a useful strategy in those circumstances. But for people who are looking to reduce weight and aren't metabolically deranged, you know, reduce your carbohydrates, make sure you're getting adequate protein, don't really worry about um, the fats, so long as we're not talking about sort of the refined uh, fats that are added in cooking oils and so on nowadays. And so it's sort of what you, if you can pick it or, or hunt it, you know, eat it. But if you have to process it beyond that, then I start questioning, okay, what is its value in human nutrition? And you can make arguments for it, but um, I, I think you have to start questioning at that point how useful is this as a calorie to me? And Simon, you had mentioned um, people kind of getting motivated to be consistent. So I want to, now we've, we've talked about getting enough energy and getting enough nutrition. What about the mindset? And I think that there's, there's sort of a mindset that it takes to get in and be consistent. And then there's the benefits of exercise to your mental health. Can you speak to that? So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a catch 22 in that respect, because when you're not when you haven't started exercising, you haven't got those benefits yet. So it makes starting feel more challenging. But you've just got to kind of jump off the precipice with faith to start off with and do it and, and understand that there are mental health benefits to resistance training and and i mean more research has been done into the medical uh, uh, the mental health benefits of, of cardio training um but in the in recent years there's now starting to become people are looking at researchers are starting to look at well what does resistance training do for a person's mental health and so there's now it's now known that it improves cognitive functioning sleep quality uh, reduces levels of anxiety, reduces depression, even in people who are uh, clinically depressive. And so these are things that you can benefit just from going back through that process. And by the way, one of the pieces of research showed that whether the person was lifting weights two times a week or five times a week, the mental health benefits was exactly the same. So even from that mental perspective, there wasn't an increase by upping the frequency of exercise, the same level uh, of improvement had occurred if you're in the gym twice a week as, as five times a week, which again comes down to efficiency. And I, I do love looking at things from an efficiency perspective nowadays because time is one of those things that we can be quite poor of if we're not aware of what's important to us. And so making things efficient and really easily doable for people 
at the outset is really important. So what I would say is there's these huge mental health benefits that you can get from exercise. In terms of how do you make yourself do that to start off with, say you, you've never exercised, you're uncomfortable in your body, you've, you'd feel embarrassed to walk into a, a gym, know that everybody has these questions about themselves and, and, and how they feel about the way they look. You could look at the most you know, aesthetically beautiful person you can imagine, and they might be riddled with insecurities too. So understand that it probably isn't as bad as you think. And if you're going to start doing something for your betterment, it's a very selfish thing. Okay, you're doing it for you to improve yourself, your life, uh, and your self-esteem as well. So it is important and see it as something important to do for yourself. And uh, I, uh, another thing I'd, I'd suggest very strongly is to avoid comparing yourself to others. It's great if you can look at somebody purely as an inspiration and go, they're inspiring. But if you aspire to be too much like them, like they ran a race in a certain time or they, their biceps look a certain way, it just might not be on the cards for you to end up like that. And you're going to frustrate yourself. So pick somebody because they inspire you. But not because you think you can be that or turn out like that. Start off with realistic goals and take your time. You know, every week that you've accumulated some form of exercise. And, and although I'm saying, you know, resistance training twice a week, I do also think it's hugely valuable to be mobile every day. So to, to walk, to be active, to be out and about, if you have physical hobbies engaging in those. Um, but at the very least, you know, a 20 to 30 minute walk, ideally twice a day, but once a day, to be mobile. Yeah. Um, even if you just start with that. But if you, if you front load the resistance training quite early in that, it will, like we talked about earlier, wake up the physiology so you will want to exercise more. Your cells will be telling you they need more. They, they want to engage. So you now have a body that can do that. And that can happen pretty rapidly within a period of four, five, six, seven weeks. So both of you have mentioned things that make me think it's really valuable to have a coach, right? Like even this motivation to get started, if there's somebody who can hold you accountable or Thomas, like you were talking about different muscle fibers might mean that you individually would benefit from a different type of diet. So having someone who's an expert or someone to th play these ideas through with can be really, really valuable. For you, Thomas, what does a typical engagement look like with a client? Are you seeing them every week, multiple times a week? What are the options for someone if they wanted to get into this with you? Yeah, for me, uh, my coaching process is pretty limited, to be completely honest. I do not work with a whole lot of people. So a lot of what I do now is, is work with... Uh, professionals work with executives. Work with um, I work with U.S. Special Forces. Um, so I mean I work try to kind of go from the, the the top down in terms of some of those categories and try to make as big of an impact as I can. So in terms of where my coaching has gone, it's a little bit different in terms of how I work with with individuals. Uh, so to answer that question, it's it's very very involved because people that are coming to me for coaching, I'm taking on maybe three to four a year at this point. It's just... Um, All right, well, let's go there. So say yeah. I'm a special forces person and I am getting the best from Thomas. What does it look like? <laughs> so special forces category is a little bit different because that's... So let's let's make it... Because uh, those guys are... That's fine. I can be I can be a let's software executive. Let's just say you're yeah, let's okay, just say you are coming to me because you're like, okay, I want full immersion. I want to you know, so generally with that, that is something where 
okay, I would have you come out once a quarter and actually work with me in person. And then it's going to be something to the effect of three to five times per week. I want you know, various forms of online check-in. Then there's another layer of that, which is also sort of the retained portion of it, where it's like, okay, yes, you're going to have questions that are come in. So for me, it's like full immersion. Just throw them in, make sure that they're, you know, they're living that style. They're actually just fully immersed in it. Um, if I'm going to give my time and attention to somebody in a small, you know, small group like that, then it needs to be fully fully immersed. So, you know, I'm available with, okay, they go into a grocery store and they need to make a decision on this food or this food. Um, I don't do a whole lot in the way of the exercise programming because that's really just, although I'm decent at it, that's just not my strong suit. And I'm a big fan of, of staying where I, I know I am really solid, which is in the nutrition category. Uh, you know, so for me, it's the clients that I'm working with are people that are uh, metabolically deranged, like Simon had said, they're having metabolic issues or they're former athletes. I work with a lot of uh, professional athletes, NFL players, NHL players that have just retired, right? Those are the kind of people that will typically come to me. They're uh, elite performers, but they have damaged their metabolisms from the things that Simon was talking about. Just beating the heck out of your body. So how do you recover that? Like, it's, we could, again, I'm so full of rabbit holes, right? You're in a trip in my yard, but it's just if you beat the heck out of your body and you train too much, you will cause metabolic damage too. So a lot of what I do is, okay, well, how do I, these, these people that are so focused on wanting to push it hard, wanting to go all the way, it's like, I have to reel them in and I have to reframe their entire life. So then that kind of leads into, there's a big psychological piece. And for me, when you look at the decisions that people make with the diet or even with their training to some degree, What's happening psychologically? What's happening to make them want to make these decisions? It could be something as simple as someone was a pro athlete and they were used to burning three, four thousand, five thousand calories in training, and now all of a sudden they're not, and they're wondering why their their weight's going up when they're living a more retired, sedentary lifestyle. Well, that's 20, 30 years of habits that you have to break, which quite frankly, I hate to rain on anyone's parade, you're not gonna fully break those habits. That's ingrained, but you can make yourself aware. Be mindful of it so you can make better decisions. So a lot of what I end up doing ends up being a lot of the mindset and the mindfulness piece of it. And then from there, there's the tactical approaches that you make with nutrition based on, okay, if you know, so Bob comes to me and he says, okay, my metabolism is damaged. I played hockey for 30 years. Uh, you know, what do I do? Okay, well, first let's address this issue, but now let's go ahead and let's practice some intermittent fasting. Let's practice the ketogenic diet, but let's look at your history and get some foods in there. And then we can go down the other side of the anti-inflammatory approach. Like what kind of foods are triggering inflammation for people? And as measured by, you know, C-reactive protein, different interleukins, you know, a lot of times I'm not a medical doctor, so I, you know, full disclaimer, but if people are willing to share their, their blood work or they're willing to get blood work and they're willing to share it with me, it does help for me to look at that because I like to see what kind of responses do you have? What is happening inside your body? So the long and short of it is it's in depth. Um, and I wish I had time to do it more because that is truly, it truly is fun. I mean, it, it really is. That is a lot of fun to be able to look at the changes in numerical values, right? You get an HSCRP that's up over six or eight or something. And then to watch people integrate a diet and lifestyle program and see it come down and come into those normal ranges. It's very satisfying, both for us, I think, as, as people who support people in that process, and then for, for the clients and patients as well. So Simon, I'm curious what it would look like an ideal client that comes to you. How is it different or similar to what Thomas offers? Um, Again, I'm, I'm not working with very many clients at all, much like 
Thomas mentioned, uh, a lot of my work is through Hit Uni now and, and the resources we put out through that. But if uh, a client came to me, primarily they're coming for the exercise side of the equation. So like Thomas said, I, you know, my focus on nutrition, my focus is very much on the exercise part of that equation. Um, so if somebody comes to me in their first session, we're going to find out, well, what is their exercise history like? Um, have they attempted to keep an exercise program going in their life? Has something, has there been a stumbling block for that? And what has been, to look to find out what that stumbling block has been. Um, and then we'll start to look at um, making sure that they've got full range of motion through their joints. Many people don't. So it's a adapting the exercises from the very first session to make sure that it matches with their current ability with the goal of stimulating improvements in things like full range of motion and posture over time. So at a very initial session, I would only run through three or four exercises with them. And I tend to refer to those as dress rehearsals rather than workouts themselves. They would they will feel like a workout to the client going going through them, but compared to somebody who's been doing it for 10 to 12 weeks, their actual intensity level or effort level is going to be lower because they're just not able to tap in uh, to the neuromuscular system in the way that somebody who has some skill, develops some skill can. So I would have them on a moderate load uh, for an exercise. And I'd pick, like we started off, if we're using machines, I'd pick a pull down, a chest press and a leg press and probably a lumbar movement as well, something to bring the hips and, and, and low back in specifically with a moderate load that they're going to perform that movement for probably around 90 seconds, maybe even two minutes, which is a little bit longer than I usually have somebody doing for. But again, their dress rehearsals, I'm looking for somebody to feel out the movement, start to acquire the skill of being able to produce a controlled movement against a load. And for some people who haven't done this before, it can take three, four, five sessions to, to get the nervous system to fire at the right rate, to, to bring in the right motor unit so you can actually produce a smooth movement. But it's about keeping it safe for them that very first session whilst giving them enough of a taste of it they go okay this is what that intensity part of the equation is because i've had so many people who've come to me they've read a book on high intensity training or they've, they've seen some videos and they say i've been doing it for a year but i just wanted to come and check i'm doing it right and at the end of that first session say i don't think i was quite there with the intensity so you know people when they're training themselves it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about people doing it for themselves Perception of effort or, or rating of perceived exertion is something that can be a little bit off for a lot of people, even people who've got a lot of exercise background. And so you can think you're working really hard and there are signals that your brain is, is picking up that's telling you that you're working really hard, but actually you're not working as hard as you think you are. And so it's getting people to get past that stage and, and saying, look, there's this extra 30% that you can tap into. And I'm going to hold your hand to get you there and we're going to do it safely. And your, your, your physiology, when we wake it up to be able to do this, is very capable of doing this. It's, it, you, it's your birthright to be able to do this. Um, and you just haven't accessed it for a long period of time. And I'm going to help you access it. And, and that would be the starting point for how we dive into high-intensity resistance training. So after hearing you say that, 
uh, what comes up for me is like this fear that if I come see you, Simon, in the morning for my 20 minutes and you push me that hard, then am I going to be able to like lift my computer or my child or like cut my vegetables that night? Or am I going to be so burnt out from how hard you pushed? No, absolutely. You, you, you may feel some people feel a little bit sort of shaky for five minutes after the workout, that immediate impact of the workout itself. But then very rapidly, they start to to you know get get backwards they could do anything they could before and over time of course they're building up strength so that actually lifting those sacks of, of food those bags of food from the supermarket or whatever becomes they suddenly this is how people usually tell me they, they first notice it they say you know i realized i was carrying six bags in from a car as i was getting home with the soup and i only used to take two and i just realized i wasn't wasn't an effort i wasn't fussed about doing it um so it's about about building people's functional ability to 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 interact in life with all the physical tasks we do in a way that that is really normal. It's, that's what should be normal and isn't for a lot of people. Um, but it takes a little bit of time to get you in there. But no, I would say, look, any decent high-intensity resistance trainer is going to be able to look at the client, observe how they're producing movement, what kind of load they're using during that movement, and not push them too hard again i go back to that dress rehearsal metaphor i've had ex-rugby players come in and say i, I want to beat down you know i want to be well okay sure and then i have people who come in at 90 years old and you adjust what's appropriate for the individual so the effort that's required for that individual because i'm not looking to take somebody to momentary muscular failure necessarily in a first second or third workout because what they're going to experience is still going to be a higher level of effort than anything else they do in the rest of their life. And if that's five reps away from momentary failure, for them it's still enough of, an, enough of a stimulus from the outset at the very beginning. So no, you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be dysfunctional for the rest of your day. <laughs> I'd make sure of that. All right, I'm still sold then. So if someone were to come, if I were to refer a patient to Hit Uni, what would they experience on your website? What could they? What's the value they could get there? So we we sort of had two categories of courses. Uh, we have three courses that are targeted at personal trainers or people who want to become personal trainers. Um, so if you're completely new to the field and you, you're into exercise, um, you take one of our courses that's going to build everything from the ground level up, from anatomy and physiology um, through to the protocol, how to apply it, all the science behind this type of exercise. Um, and then there's uh, courses for the general public. So we have a course on combining high intensity resistance training with running so one of the, one of the people who's our one of our trainers uh, who filmed this course um, just completed a 25k off-road trail race based on doing uh, one high intensity resistance training workout a week and two runs per week and none of the runs were longer than uh Nine, nine miles was by far the longest run he did in training and he finished third for his age category so that's about his process of combining the resistance training with um, approaches to cardiovascular exercise. We have a, a course on um, uh, bodybuilding using high intensity training for those who are looking to absolutely push their musculature uh, in an in a aesthetic way to its peak. And we have a course on sort of biomechanics and, and integrating functional movement with high intensity resistance training. So we have these courses for people who want to learn to do this at home. And we have for themselves as an individual, and we have 
those courses, but are for personal trainers who want to be able to coach other people to do this as well. Fantastic. That makes it really accessible, especially this day and age when gyms are closed and it's it's hard to uh, go somewhere where you can do this. With that in mind, do you need equipment? That's a great question. And the answer is yes and no, like it was to one of the previous questions. Um, it's really nice to have equipment. And if you're a trainer, it's great to have the best equipment so that you can work with lots of different populations, people who are you know, very old, people who are obese, people who are shorter than average, people who are taller than average. It's great to have equipment that can help facilitate you do that in a way that's um, going to be the most uh, pleasurable or, or easy experience for those individuals. Um, but at the other end of the spectrum, no, you can do body weight exercise in a high intensity fashion, going to that point of muscular failure. And there's a new course we've got coming out very shortly. I think we're going to give away uh, access to one of the courses to one of your listeners. Um, and that course is on uh, no load training. And so there's some really fascinating research that's been happening in the last four years that shows that if you maximally contract a muscle without any load, so long as you're contracting it maximally and you're stringing together enough reps, you can get all the benefits that you would get from using an external load. So there are ways you don't need to use any equipment whatsoever to having a few bits of equipment, a few dumbbells and a chin-up bar around to a plethora of ultra-expensive equipment. And I'd say the key thing is to not get hung up on the equipment it's not about the equipment the real machine is here mm -hmm. this is the machine we're looking to improve um now there are special cases like i mentioned where you might want fancy equipment but use what you have available to you because really it's about inroading your muscle tissue being aware of the contraction the range of motion how that feels what that level of effort feels like at the end of the set stimulating that point as thomas mentioned earlier flipping that switch and then it's done and then you can go and rest recover get on with the rest of your life enjoy your family until day three comes around and you go do it again you hit that switch again do it again okay. simple yeah and i will just add to that is is to create the environment where it's a positive experience so that it's it is a positive experience it, less than equipment people come to me constantly what equipment should I get? Should I get this? Should I get that? And I, my response is always the same. It's be like, again, it's minimal viable product is always what I say. Do the most with the least because I will tell you as someone that trains extensively, my workouts don't change much if I have a $10,000 piece of equipment in front of me or if I have some resistance bands and a couple dumbbells, maybe a TRX. It's nothing changes that much. But what is a constant is setting the right environment so that it is a place you want to go. Um, if that means putting some brighter paint on the walls to lift your spirits, I would. if you're going to get hung up on anything, get hung up more on creating the environment than just spending equipment because spending money on equipment just leads to this. Uh, it's a void fill. You, you, you think the idea of getting this equipment and using it sounds great, but then using it is not how many, you know, spin bikes do we see sitting in people's uh, bedrooms as laundry hampers or, you know, laundry hanging. It's, it's not about the equipment. It's putting it and give it a distinct place. Even if it's a distinct corner of a room, it just, in my opinion, it makes all the difference in the world to just be able to get in your element and then get out of your element. So, Thomas, um, 
As we age, talk, can you speak a little bit to why this is so important um, for graceful aging? I think it comes back to the, the mitochondrial piece again. Again, if we look at aging in general, uh, mitochondria is a big piece of it. Um, a dysfunctional mitochondria will create more of what is called reactive oxygen species. This is ROS. This is uh, metabolic waste, right? So we always have a degree of reactive oxygen species. We always have a degree of metabolic waste. Uh, just like when you fire up a car, there's going to be exhaust. There's going to be metabolic waste. Well, our body comes equipped with its own natural kind of ecosystem to diffuse that or to um, fight against it and help eliminate it. And what ends up happening is throughout creating energy, working out, walking, anything, breathing, talking, keeping your eyes open, all uses energy. Well, every time that you use that energy, you have waste, okay? Well, what happens is when the mitochondria is not efficient or the mitochondria is dysfunctional, it expels more waste. It becomes ruthlessly inefficient. It's just the same exact comparison as having a brand new modern vehicle that is getting tremendous miles per gallon and comparing that to a you know, 1977 Ford F-350 that's just fallen apart and is just spewing black smoke as soon as you fire it up. Which one's going to get better fuel economy? Which one's going to do better? Which one's going to produce less waste? I think you know the answer. The same thing happens. And to some degree, as we age, of course, mitochondria is going to suffer. Of course, things are going to change. You cannot deny that. Aging is a part of life. But if you focus on where most of the reactive oxygen species is created, it's created at that mitochondrial level. So again, if we can make the mitochondria more efficient, then we have less of this metabolic waste that our body has to work so hard to combat. Because what ends up happening, best way to describe it is what's called your electron transport chain. It's basically when you have a series of electrons and, and you have energy that passes along, potential energy that passes along into the mitochondria, into a cell. And through that process, um, you have electrons that escape the pathway. Um, so if you think of rolling up 20 bowling balls down an alley, okay, a few of them are going to hit pins and create energy, but a lot of them are also going to bounce off of the alley and they're going to start causing chaos everywhere. Well, that's just what happens in your body too, as energy is traveling to the cell to create potential energy, excuse me, to create energy, a lot of that energy, a lot of those electrons are going to release. And what they do is they bounce around your body, just like a pinball machine, and everything they touch, they essentially wear out. They essentially cause damage to. We want less of those rogue electrons. And when you are training properly and when you are uh, doing these kinds of workouts that we're talking about and you're eating the right kinds of foods and you're eating an anti-inflammatory diet and you're following a ketogenic diet and these metabolically flexible diets like intermittent fasting, you improve, again, that mitochondrial efficiency and you quite virtually have less of those rogue electrons running around throughout your body. So therefore, your body is able to spare the antioxidant capabilities that are built in for very vital functions, keeping your organs alive, keeping your brain healthy, the potential of fighting Alzheimer's dementia, things like that, which is where we really want our energy preserved. And uh, that's, I mean, that's just what's fascinating. And there's a lot of different ways to to combat aging, in my opinion, but I think focusing on mitochondrial function is probably the biggest piece. 
talking about aging and another significant thing that happens within the muscles themselves and the muscle tissue itself uh, is obviously sarcopenia related where you lose fibers um the fibers that you do have shrink it's a triple whammy and then fibers convert from uh pure types to hybrid types effectively making you weaker whereas if you start applying a load and resistance training you can reverse that process you can build muscle tissue increase the size of the muscle fibers and you can also transform these hybrid fiber types back to a pure type most likely a type 2a which is sort of the most metabolically sort of active muscle fiber type and you're staving off sarcopenia and a very similar thing is going to happen to collagen and elastin as well yeah Yeah, i think i've read literature around longer lived cultures they tend to have hilly areas and particularly those big muscles and the thighs and hips stay stay active and and stay strong and that is associated with with more longer lived um communities i guess can you can either of you speak to that kind of focusing on certain muscle groups or anything like that for aging well, i I, th- I think that yeah they, they might have looked at those particular muscles but if you take that out across the whole system there's only going to be more benefit from every muscle in your body being as close to its optimal as it can be. Now, look, sarcopenia to a degree is inevitable. You will lose strength and you will lose muscle size as you age. But um, there's a guy called Clarence Bass who's been training since he was in his 20s and he's in his 80s now. And he basically has a physiology. Um, tests have been done in, um, at universities that shows he's a, essentially a 40-year-old in terms of his body. And so you can reverse this aging. And yeah, I think, you know, being in one of those Greek islands where you've got to climb up all those steps to go and get your food and then walk back down to go and get the fish from from the sea is going to have a resistance type training effect on the muscles of the hips and thighs. But there's no reason not to extrapolate that out to the the entirety of the body. The more metabolically active, the stronger, the the more, uh, the the better um, uh, connective tissue you have, the stronger connective tissue you have the longer you're going to last because i think thomas touched on it earlier as well it's like the muscles are are the window to your physiology so all of those internal organs are forced to sort of stay in check and working at their best because your muscles are demanding that of them yeah fantastic well you guys have really brought to light, I think, the power of how efficient this is. It's it's all very doable. If you have made your exercise routine and your diet work for you in a really efficient way, then it can be done in very little time with very little equipment, with, with relatively little help. Um, it sounds like with, especially with Hit Uni, there's a lot of access to support online so that people can make this happen. Um, start today. Why not? <laughs> right? Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like you guys have blown uh, blown down all of the barriers, all of the obstacles to putting this into practice. And um, I think it even surprised me. I feel like I've known this intellectually for a long time. Like, oh, it doesn't take much. And my my routine, I like to go for runs, so I spend you know hours a week doing that. And you've woken me up to this ability to do it more efficiently, perhaps. So I'm I'm super intrigued personally and really excited to share this with my patients and, of course, with our listeners. Um, and, and strength training will enhance your running as well. Uh, well, that's fun. I, I could always afford to be a little faster. So, Thomas, if we wanted to learn more about what you have to offer, where could our listeners find that? 
I think the best place, uh, by all means, is to drive uh, everyone to, to YouTube. I've got over 2 million subscribers there in the world of intermittent fasting and keto, and I've got very specific videos uh, catered towards uh, older population as well. So anyone, you know, I've got specific over 40, over 50, over 60, over 70 videos, um, you know, that, that kind of, they, they do give a full breakdown on, hey, here's what you could be eating with the ketogenic diet, and here's how it works, and I go very deep into the physiology there. Um, you know, because at this point I don't take on a lot of clients in terms of coaching, I think that's the best place to send people to get the most uh, help to allow people to really get a place to start and, and understand sort of this relationship with resistance training, but more so just the nutritional, the nutritional piece of it altogether. Awesome. Great. And for you, Simon, is Hit Uni the best place to get more information about what you offer? Yeah, we have a, a YouTube channel and a Facebook channel as well, but uh, Hit Uni will show what we have. And the, the hituni.com forward slash blog is where I put a lot of um, my writing up. Um, and there's some really useful articles that will also help people get a sense, uh, sort of a deeper sense of what we've been talking about today on, on the exercise side of things and to, to dive a little bit deeper into that. Fantastic. Well, thank you both so much for being here today. It's been a real pleasure and a treat to hear each of your perspectives on how to get the most out of your exercise routine. And thank you, as always, to each of our listeners for spending the time with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being with us for this conversation with Thomas DeLauer and Simon Shawcross. If you didn't know already, one of the other things we do in the collective is create supplements for better cognition, better aging, and more energy. If you're looking for any or all of that, go to neurohacker.com to learn more. And as our gift to you, we're offering an additional 15% off using the code PODCAST72. If you have questions about this content, then please leave them on our site at neurohacker.com slash podcast, and we'll work to get those answered on a future episode. Make sure to leave us a five-star review and subscribe to our podcast. We'll see you next time.